so the question is asked, does life have a purpose? And, and I wanted to, to share a couple of statistics with you here um, because this is very relevant stuff. Um, we're a people who are like almost spiritually schizophrenic. We, one day we feel like God's leading us, the next day we don't. Sometimes we believe God is very prominent. Other days we believe like, well, maybe he doesn't exist. And, and so this, this dichotomy is, is what really is, is fueling a lot of our confusion in this world. I found this article because I was looking for an article like this, and of course it substantiated what my hunch was. Um, of those students that go to college, did you know that 52% of math majors switch to another major by their junior year? Math is hard. It is. So 52% switch by their junior year. 40% who are studying natural sciences switch their majors. Of those education majors, 37% switch. I was one of those. 36% of humanities majors switch. 35% of all STEM majors switch. 32% of engineering majors switch. Do you understand that one, Roger? <laughs> okay. 31% of social science majors switch. 31% of business majors switch. 20 28% of computer and information sciences majors switch. Interesting statistic. The other ones didn't have a preface to this, but this one did. It's because most students that go to study computers realize when they get to school, they already know more than the teachers. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And so most of them change their majors because they realize I'm just wasting my money here. 26% of all healthcare majors switch. So, so basically, what does that mean? That so many people go off to college and they switch their majors. Now, these are people, when they, you know, they leave high school, they're like, I'm going this course, this path, this direction, this is what I'm going to do with my life. But when they get into it, they recognize, I made a mistake. This is not what I was supposed to do. Has anybody been in there? Has anybody here switched your majors before? All right, so like four of you. <laughs> Most of us do, right? And so that, that provokes the question, does life have a purpose? And how do we make sense of our lives in regards to that purpose if it does exist? So I went back to Genesis 127. I looked up again this passage, which says, God created us in his image or in his likeness. He created us in that likeness. Uh, John Piper wrote in his Desiring God that that basically means that, that we are a mirror of God. So he created us to mirror him, not just in appearance, but also in practice. All right? So if we are mirrors of God and then he created us with a purpose, then that purpose is going to be manifest and mirrored in how we live out our lives. The, the purpose in his creation was to create an object that he could love and to display the fullness of his love to them. That was his attribute long before he created any of us. He was a loving God, a completely perfect loving God. So creating us in his mirror image, he created us so that he could have somebody to love. You know, that's pretty awesome. 
So if nothing else, you should be able to say this. My purpose in life is simply to love and be loved. To let God just do his thing in me and through me. Help me love people. But he doesn't stop there. In Isaiah 43, 6b through verse 7, it says this. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. I thought it was cool that the very first chorus we sang used those phrases. Our sons and the daughters. Bring them to me, right? From the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So it even connects you back to creation in Genesis 1.27. But it says that for my glory, I created you all, God created you all for his glory, for his purposes, and so that he could love you and love the world through you. Now, that comes with some some caveats here because, for example, if he creates us in love and he creates us for his purpose and for his glory, then what does that have to do with our purpose, right? But by giving you his ability to love, he also gives you his ability to forgive. He also gives you free will because a loving God would never take away your ability to choose him or any other God. And so he gives you free will. He gives you the ability to make mistakes. He gives you the ability to fall on your face. He gives you the ability and the, and the decision to, to refuse him if you choose to. So what happens now, we have this dichotomy spreading out even further. We have a God who has a purpose for your life. And we have individuals who've been created in his image who say, I don't want your purpose. I'm going to live for my purpose. And so your purposes now have generated within your own heart, your own mind, your own desires, your own, your own fleshly desires, because the chances are, because of our sinful nature, we're not going to choose the same course of action that God chose for us because he's holy and perfect. We're not. So instead, most people graduate high school thinking, I want to pick a job and a career that's going to make me the most money, Right? And that probably is the number one culprit into why people change their majors. Because by the time they've matured and grown up a little bit, they start to think, maybe money's not everything. If this is what it takes to make $200,000 a year, maybe I should learn to be content with $50,000 a year. Just a hunch, by the way. In, in Isaiah 14, 24, now the scriptures do, they, they support the idea that you're going to have a personal purpose, a personal goal, a mission statement, and a godly one also. And in, in Isaiah 14, 24, it says, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. His plan will come to fruition with or without you. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. God's purposes do not change just because you might change. He still expects you to love people. He still expects you to be a reflection of his glory in this world. He expects that. That's his purpose for your life. In Psalm 33, 10 and 11, this is good stuff here. Might convict you a little bit, might step on your toes. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people's. So where you have plans and where you have purposes that are contrary to his, he will thwart them. I went to college to study to be a band director. 
And God did not want me to be a band director. See, he called me to be a pastor when I was still in the military a year before I left to go to college. So when I'm in college, I'm saying, God, I'm going to study music. I'm going to be a band director. And he's like, good luck with that. Because I have already created you for a purpose that is contrary to that. You can still use your music in church if you don't, you know, pawn your trombone. But if you do, then I'll still use you in ministry, okay? You following me? And so it took five years of me fighting with him and running from him before he finally overtook me. And he says, now, are you ready to do it my way? You've wasted a lot of money. You've wasted a lot of years off of your, off of your, your lifespan. Is it a, are you ready now to do what I've asked you to do? And of course, when you're laying on the ground hungry and, and homeless and carless and you don't have you know, any motivation to keep breathing, you'll say, God, if you can help me, I'll do whatever you ask. And God picks you up off of the ground, cleans you off, and he says, now, let's do it my way. Now, it would be a great ending to a perfect story if we would just follow from there on. But once we get up on our feet, we forget how he's delivered us from Egypt, and we start to forsake the Lord again, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. So we do this kind of stuff. It's cyclical. We get on our feet, we fall on our faces. He picks us up. We get, on, we get arrogant, we fall on our faces. He picks us up. It just keeps repeating, right? So it just adds some color to this world. But he thwarts, he, he foils the plans, he thwarts the purposes of his peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. Now, now Solomon, who was, of course, the most wise person throughout all the Old Testament, at least we give him credit for such, he wrote in Proverbs nineteen twenty one, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. The Lord's purpose prevails. So in essence, in order for us to live a life of purpose, then we have to be a people who do two things. Reflect his glory, love people. The only way that can happen is if we die to ourselves, die to our plans and our agendas, and live for his glory, his purposes, his plan and agenda. That's where it gets complicated. So Paul comes along in, in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, and he, he writes these words, and hopefully these make better sense now. He says, if you have any encouragement in your spirit from being united with Christ, if that does any good for you whatsoever, if that means anything to you, then cling to it. He says, if there is any comfort from his love, if you enjoy his love, embrace it. If you enjoy the fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if, in, if there's any tenderness and compassion inside of you, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in purpose. So if you enjoy anything of the Lord, you enjoy your salvation, you enjoy your church family, you enjoy that you pray and he hears, you enjoy his healing touch, you enjoy the fellowship of other believers, whatever it is, if there's anything about God that you enjoy, then cling to it 
and just make up your mind to live for his glory. Just cling to him, follow him, and he will, he will bring you about in such a way that it's just going to overwhelm you. So my question is this, of myself and of you, why don't we do that? Why don't we just cash in all of our chips and say, God, I am done with this fighting against you and not pleasing you and working against you and falling on my face and struggling and not believing and I'm tired of this. Today, I'm going to start doing things your way. Why don't we do that? For me, it's probably about 90% fear. 90% fear, I would say. God would probably say, no, it's 100%. Um, but that's what we're up against. You see, on any given day, I know what God wants me to do. Why don't I do it? On any day, I know God says, I want you to go do this. I'm like, oh, no, Lord, I don't want to do that. And I don't. We met an interesting couple uh, last week from Cedar Rapids. Who He was a chiropractor. I would say maybe 40 years old. What would you think? Maybe 40. Sold his practice. Sold his house, his cars, everything they own. And they and their two kids are packing up to go to Denmark where they're going to be doing mission work for the rest of their lives. Now, why don't we all do that? One, maybe not. Maybe we're not called. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's lack of faith. Maybe it's, you know what? I like my life the way it is. Could be. Anyway, let me dig in a little bit deeper here. We must die to ourselves in order that we may live for other people. In doing so, we will show them the full extent of our love, which Jesus has given to us on the cross. Verse 3 of this passage in Philippians says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. So you see the dichotomy. This is what God wants, but we have selfish ambitions. And so we're at work in this. We're work, we're, uh, the spirits at work against us in this. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as Christ. Now, I heard Francis Chan say something very interesting. Because, you know, he gave up his church uh, and, and went and did a different ministry in people's homes. Okay? So this was a major change for him. He gave up a huge salary, a huge church to do ministry in a different way. He, he pretty much asked the question this way. Why is it that we as Americans feel that every year we need to make more money, live in nicer homes, drive nicer cars, wear fancier duds, and keep improving our living Situation. Why do we feel like we have to do that? The world teaches us that's what you should do, but we're all people that basically climb the social ladder, the economic ladder. We're conditioned that we have to keep getting bigger, better, newer, fancier, nicer. Where did that come from? It certainly didn't come from God. So in order to do in that regard what God wants us to do, it's going to take some sacrificing of our agenda sacrificing of our preconceived mental 
capacity or mental notions or financial desires, whatever it is, we have to give it up and die to it. Now, maybe, like Eric said, maybe you're not called to that, and that's possible. But what are we called to? Dying to ourselves, living for Christ. Dying to ourselves, living to Christ. Every one of us across the board are called to that. It's called discipleship. In our discipleship, we commit ourselves to Christ and to his teachings, and we commit ourselves to following in the footsteps of Christ to be like-minded so that we can be just like Jesus in this world around us. So if that's what we're doing, then why are we so bored with it? Why do we, we look at church like, do I have to go to church? Do I have to go to Sunday school? Do I have to go to Bible school? And this is a phrase I hear more times than not. And I tell you what, it's, it's contrary to scripture, but it's also ridiculous. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Uh, like the cartoon that says somebody posted on Facebook. Yeah, you don't have to uh, wear a parachute to jump out of a plane, but it certainly helps. Um, but see, you see the cop out in that. That's, people are conditioning themselves, and they're using that to excuse themselves. But the scriptures make it very clear. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. But, the, but this is the problem. People today that don't go to church, they look at the church as being irrelevant. We're boring. We're stupid. We're institutionalized. And that's all we care about is maintaining the institution instead of being Christ-like in the world. And so I struggle with it. As a pastor, I struggle with it. What is the purpose of the church? If, if my purpose as an individual is to love people and to let the glory of the Lord reveal itself through me for the sake of others, then why does the church exist? What is our purpose? Well, you can look at the Great Commission. Our purpose is to go, therefore, into all nations, baptizing, making disciples, Luke 10, Jesus has a very interesting uh, calling and, and a commission for his people. He basically told his disciples, his 72 followers, cast out demons, heal the sick, lay hands on people, receive the Holy Spirit. And very few people are doing it. So there's this frustration in me. Let me take you for a minute to Luke chapter 10. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. And I'll I'll just read a portion of this. Understand that in verse, I think it's verse 25, I can't read it. Uh, It says, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, what is written in the law? And this professional responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's here's the kicker here. He said, you have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But listen to what the man said. In order to justify himself. To justify his possessions, to justify his attitude, his behaviors, his theology, to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? 
And Jesus told this story, which you've probably heard, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about an 18-mile trip down through the, the, the wadi. Uh, some of us will get to see that soon, but it's a cool trip. Anyway, on this road, which is a very rough road, it's all desert and rock. There's no trees. There's no shade, nothing. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half naked. The priest... A priest happened to walk down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. In other words, go and be the reflective image of Christ in the world. Let the glory of the Lord shine through you for those who do not have. It just just hiccuped. Um, but, But go and show the glory of the Lord through you for those that need it. And love everybody that you come into contact with. That's what his commission was. Because that is what Christ did. Be like minded. Now, I heard, uh, I heard an interesting phrase. This came from, um, oh, I can't remember his name now, longtime theologian, uh, Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe was talking about this passage, and he said this. There are three types of people in this world. There are those who will beat you up. There are those who will pass you by. And there are those who will pick you up. In every scenario, every type of person, God's purposes are being displayed. Now, this seems contrary. Because you think about it, the guy who beat up the man, the the, the thieves who beat him up, how could that be working in God's purpose? But if you go to Exodus 9.16, you'll read this passage about Pharaoh, who was uh, uh, abusing the people of Israel and increasing their workload and was refusing to treat them fairly. And and so God said this to Pharaoh in 9 verse 16, but I raised you up for this purpose that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth through Pharaoh. If God had a purpose for Pharaoh's uh, disrespect and, and disapproval and defiance of the people of Israel, then surely he had a purpose for those thieves. Surely he has a purpose for every one of us who refuses to be Christ-like. It was the two religious people that passed him by. Two religious people passed him by. They wouldn't give this Samaritan the time of day. Why? Because he was a Samaritan. He was a half Jew. People looked down upon him. They didn't care for him. They were like trashy people, like like, uh, Iowans or something. I don't know. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't that. It was, you know, it was probably Indiana people. But, But the fact is, The fact is that these religious people passed them by. Of all of the people on the earth, the religious people should have taken care of that poor man. But in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, the scriptures say this, But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them, 
because they had not been baptized by John. In other words, they didn't feel like they were compelled to have to take care of that wretched man. They didn't feel like they were compelled to follow God's rules or Jesus' teachings. They don't need to be like Christ because they haven't been baptized in the same baptism. And they justified themselves as a result. But in Luke 10, 36, Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? And the expert of the law said, the one who had mercy. And Jesus said, good, go and do likewise. If you would, go back to this passage in Philippians for a moment. We've already talked about the first five verses, but let's look at uh, verses 12 and 13. Shining, my dear friend, or therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. What in the world does our salvation have to do with the purpose of God, loving people, and letting his glory shine through us? Our salvation is contingent upon our dying to ourselves. We have to die to ourselves before Christ can live in us. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and die, there can be no life. Unless we die to our old selves and our old flesh and our old ways of life and our old agenda, our old purposes, unless we die to that, we can't be set, we can't set our minds and hearts upon the new. You can't put new wine, wine in old wineskins. So we have to be completely changed. We have to die to our past, move on and be resurrected in Christ. And that is a daily struggle for a lot of us because every day you're going to have the temptation, okay, do I want to do what I want or do I want to do what God wants me to do? Every day that temptation is going to slap you in the face. And the closer you get to the Lord, the more he's going to slap you in the face. This is a problem. This is a problem because God wants us to, to live in his glory, but yet we resist. Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. So we need to go in power, quit being wimps, quit being afraid of everything. Just go and do what I tell you to do. Go and, and, and pray for those who I tell you to pray for. Go and love those I tell you to love for. Just go and do what I tell you, and I will equip you for that. But we sit here and we're like, no, I can't. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. So let me tell you a little story. The reason that that Paige and I, I don't want to implicate anybody else who doesn't want me to implicate them. (laughs) But there was others with us. The reason we went to Cedar Rapids is because I met a couple that had something I didn't, something I wanted. All my life as a pastor, I've read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and it talks about praying in the Spirit. I've never understood. I was raised Baptist where that I would stay away from it. Don't talk about it. It's, it's in the history. Don't just stay away from it. It's bad stuff. It's the devil. You know, I've heard all these things growing up. But yet there was a part of me that always wanted more. It wanted something. And so I reached out to this couple and they said, well, come, come have dinner with us. 
So last Friday night, Paige and I went and had dinner with them, with some friends of ours. I'll implicate you anyway. And we basically just had fellowship with them and their kids and had a good time. And, and as a result, he, he said, well, if you want, I can lay hands on you and pray for you, and you can have this gift. And so all four of us did it. And, and all of a sudden, this language started coming out of my mouth that I've never heard in my entire life. And it gave me a peace over my whole body. It, it was just so calming and so blessing. It was so blessed. And then I felt guilty about it because I'm like, oh, if the people at church know this, man, they're going to get rid of me. They're going to hate me for this. And I started reading through this passage, 1 Corinthians 14, over and over and over and over and over. And, and I read some interesting stuff that Paul wrote about the gift. He, he basically said this in verse 5. He said, um, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. But I would rather have you prophesy, because he who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so the church may be edified. It's an either-or thing. He said this, I want you all to speak in tongues. Why? Because it builds you up. It builds up your body. It builds up your spirit. It builds up your faith. I want all of you to do it because there's something about it that connects you to the Father at a deep level, and it's, it's amazing. I want you all to experience it. On the other hand, I also want you to prophesy because prophecy builds up the church. I'd rather you do that. But you know what we have today? None of it. Nobody prophesies. Nobody, nobody prays in tongues because we have learned to hate it. We've learned to despise it. Basically, what is we've learned not to study the scriptures. But let me tell you. There's something different in me and there's something different in Laura and there's something different in my wife. They can tell you about their experiences. And so um, I, told, uh, I told Scott Green about it, and Scott's like, um, I want it too. And so uh, Scott now has a heavenly language, and Holly has a heavenly language and a changed heart. Oh, by the way, Holly was baptized this week in water. Mm-hmm. But, but here, here's the thing. I have been afraid now ever since that somebody would find out. And I remember doing a sermon about a year ago on fear of man and that we should fear God more than we fear man. But this fear is real in me. This fear of what you're going to think about me this fear of whether or not you can trust me or want me to be your pastor, this fear of if I'm going to be judged or not. But, but it's more than that because, you know, with, with this now, I know the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of me. I know, I know that if I were to lay hands on Gabe's knee, it would be healed if I prayed for it. I have this confidence now. I know I could do that. But yesterday when he came in my office, I didn't say a word because I was afraid that it may not happen. When we went to Chick-fil-A for lunch yesterday, there was a girl sitting there with a boot on her ankle talking about to her girlfriends how much her foot hurts. And God said, pray for her foot. And I didn't because I was afraid. We're walking through Sam's club and God says, that person right there, go talk to them. No, God, don't ask me to do that. 
And then God's telling me, I want you to invite everybody to, to just let God have control of their lives instead of living by fear. And I said, oh, God, don't make me do this in church. So moments ago before I got up, I told Paige, I'm scared. And I am scared. I'm not now because I already did it. But um, that's what Jesus did. Jesus healed the sick. He cast out demons, laid hands on people. And then he says, go and do likewise. But we don't. And people don't trust the church. They look at the church as, well, you know, they're, they're, they're nice people. But, but uh, you know, it's not for me. But I tell you what, if they had pain and they needed healing, Jesus might be on their top of their list. If they were dying with cancer and, and didn't know where they were going to spend their eternity, maybe they might think a second time. The, the thing is, is that we have a God that is so big, so powerful, so amazing, and we're content with just eating the crumbs from the table. Why are we content with crumbs when he has so much more for us? Crazy. I don't get it. I've never understood it. And that's why I've always been discontented in my spirit because I don't understand how people can say, oh, I don't want any more God. I'm plenty. Or, or, you know, think of it like this. The scriptures say that the speaking in tongues, praying in tongues builds you up. It says it edifies the self. That would be like people saying to me, oh, I'm, I'm completely edified. I don't need more. I am so built up, pastor. I don't need another ounce of building because I am just confident all the way to the roof. That doesn't happen. This week I stood toe to toe with a demon and uh, had fear in me. Hmm. Why are we so afraid? So we're going to close in prayer and we're going to stand and sing. And I'm just going to invite you, if you, if you uh, have some physical ailment, um, I, th- I think it's best if you come to the office after church and we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you to be healed. Um, because, you know, if, if there's people that don't believe, it could taint the spirit in the room. It's scriptural also. But uh, just know that um, God's a lot bigger than your theology. He's bigger than your experience. And, and if there's fear in your heart, you need to get, it, get rid of it. Let's pray, okay? Holy Father, oh, yeah, we'll do it in just a second before they sing, okay? I know what you're talking about now. All right, so let's pray. Holy Father, breathe life into us. Uh, rebuke the, the fear inside of us. And fan into flame the sparks of faith that reside within us. Help us to be spiritual giants, Lord, who are afraid of nothing and confident that the Spirit of God is in us and working through us for your good. And I pray, Lord, that you'll rebuke us of where our purposes have been skewed, where our plans and our agendas and our goals have been ungodly. I pray that you'll change us, 
that you will forgive us and replenish us. Because, Lord, in your hands are all the blessings this world has to give. There's nothing better. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So I have one more uh, video for you before we sing. Hopefully. There you go. Western Church to obey Jesus' commands to go and yes. to, to go to the unreached. Yes, I believe Jesus called us all to go to the unreached, and we need to stop for the one, just to find out who He's leading us to every day and go. And first, it's to be in His presence, because when we're in the presence of God and we're full of His glory, then it's easy to reach the unreached, because we shine. We're full of His glory. We're full of His presence. I was 16 years old when God called me to go as a minister and a missionary, and I was in a powerful experience with God. It was just my hands were lifted and the glory came down, and I felt His power just all over me, and He said, go and be a minister and a missionary to Africa, Asia, and England. And just believing God as a 16-year-old girl Nothing special, nothing, nothing different, just a yes cry. And if every believer, everyone who loves Jesus would just say yes, and they'd step out of their door each day and find somebody who's broken, who's hurting, who's sick, who's dying, who's hungry, and just love them, then the kingdom would be one. I, I think so many people are looking for the big thing. You know, let's get a ticket. Let's do the big thing when God's just saying, if you would get inside of my heart and stop for one person every day, just one person, if everybody who calls the name of Jesus and calls him their lover, their savior, their Lord, if they would just reach seven people in their lifetime, then the whole world would know Jesus. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been slammed in against walls, knifed, and none of that has been painful to me. When I see one person, one child come to Jesus, and now I've gotten to lead over a million to Jesus. And that's only because we just all believe, we just all stop, and they come. You need to go. You need to go and reach the lost it's the most glorious thing you could ever imagine. You're just going to be so happy. Just go. Who cares what it costs you? Of course it costs everything. He's worthy. We bring the lamb, the reward of his suffering. Go and find them. Go and reach them. He's worthy.
wrote that song. That's cool. I'm kidding. That's a great song. All right, let's pray, right? Father, as we go our separate ways, I pray that your spirit will continue this, this work that you've already begun in us. With fear and trembling, the scriptures say we should work out our salvation, Lord. So help us to, to, to attack it and to just let you do your thing in us for the purpose of this dying world who's lost their hope. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us even before we were born and setting us apart for the purpose that you've created us for. You are an amazing God, Lord. We love you. We worship you. We serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.